Thank you very much. Um, sometimes as a preacher, you get the real privilege of being in the worship time and the spontaneous contributions that are brought make you think, I think God wants to say something to us today. And as the, <coughs> excuse me, building the dramatic tension, as the, uh, as the contributions have come along the theme of confidence, and finding confidence in the Lord, um, I've thought, uh, knowing what I'm going to preach on, um, it, it's clearly what God wants to speak speak into. So without any further ado, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. Um, so if you do have a Bible, turn there, and we're going to be from verse 1 onwards, um, 3 to 11. So um, if you don't have any scripture with you, that's absolutely fine. The words are going to appear on the screen behind me, so you can read along there. Um, let's get into it. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. This is Paul, by the way, writing to the church in Philippi that we've been seeing. He goes on, verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have every reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You may have noticed the theme of confidence coming through there. What is a Christian? This is a question that I asked my four-year-old son Jackson yesterday, and he said to me, a Christian is someone who gives things to mummy, which <laughs> I don't know what that says about the, the heights of theology that are being taught in our house, or what kind of secret teaching Hannah might be giving Jackson on the side. Oh yeah, we're all meant to live as good Christians, Jackson. What does that mean, mummy? Oh, sit down, son, let me tell you. <laughs> it would be impossible in a succinct manner to nail down exactly how Paul the Apostle would describe a Christian. It would be over a long time, but there are a few phrases here in verses 1 and 3 that give us a, a, at least an angle on, on the question. He speaks as these believers in Philippi should be ones who rejoice in the Lord, verse 1. Verse 3, those who worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus. He's saying Christians should be people who celebrate, who worship, who rejoice. And you rejoice in something because you see its worth and you see its value. And we've called this series in Philippians a life pursuing Christ, or life pursuing Christ. And here, more than anywhere else in the letter, Paul outlines just how 
worthy Christ is to him. How as he's found him, he's found in him worth that is, that is more than everything else he's been able to find. And why the worth of Christ is, is worth giving the whole of his life to pursuing. And how he longs for the Philippian church and for us to do the same. And so this passage, I think, can be broken down into three stages that we're going to look at this morning. First, the danger that we can fall into and miss out on the worth of Christ. Then secondly, the solution to that danger. And then finally, the prize that we can find in Christ. So let's get into it. Firstly, the danger. He begins here in his teaching in, uh, with, with warning. He starts verse, verse 3 with three times saying, look out. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And what Paul is doing here is he is talking about one very specific group um, that you see turn up in all kinds of places in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writing, uh, a group of Jewish Christians, or not a particular group, but it would be often the case that Jewish Christians would come into a church, and in Philippi, the likelihood is they haven't actually arrived yet, that they aren't actually subject to this influence yet, but Paul is a man of vast pastoral experience. He knows that it's just a matter of time before this kind of false teaching is going to come in. And what they say is, oh, it's great that you've discovered Jesus as Gentiles, as those that haven't been raised as Jews. But if you really want to live out a legitimate faith, if you want to be the real deal, if you want to you know, be properly in with God, you've got to also live like a Jew. You've got to observe all of the laws, all of the practices. This is what the true life of following God looks like. And it's this that Paul attacks in the strongest possible way, saying that these teachers are dogs, they're evildoers, they're mutilators of the flesh, a fairly crass reference there to the practice of circumcision that was so central to the Jewish people. And in a, in a letter that is so encouraging, so warm in its tone, has been so friendly so far. You think, what, where has this come from, Paul? Like, what has happened between chapter 2 and chapter 3? It's like, really, you've got the wrong side of, out, out of the wrong side of bed today. But it's because these people have an agenda. These people that might come in that is serious to Paul, they want to take the eyes of the Philippians off of Christ and onto themselves. Paul's phrase that he uses three times there that we saw, he, they want the Philippian people to put their confidence in the flesh. But Paul is absolutely clear in verse 3. He says, we are ones who put no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. And in stating it so categorically, I think it, it confronts us with a question. Where are we putting our confidence? Are we putting our confidence in the Lord? As the psalm that Hannah read out says, the psalmist saying, I put my confidences in you, God. It's a question that drives right to the heart of living out Christian experience. As we go about our lives, as we live our everyday Christian, Christian experience, what are we actually looking to? What are we confident will actually give us the security that we long for, the sense of identity, the sense of belonging, the joy that we're looking for? What are we confident can actually give us salvation? And it's this 
toxic agenda that these Jewish Christians are likely to bring in in the future that where they're saying, look, you will find all of these things if only you will look to yourself. Look to the flesh. And yet what's really interesting is that it's from first-hand experience that Paul knows this is not the way to live. He says, verse 4, if anyone thinks that he has reason for, the conf- for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then in verse 5 to 6, he goes through all of the reasons that he has confidence. He said, I'm from the people of Israel. He said, my connection and my ancestry to the father of the faith. And so my claim for to be one of God's chosen people by my birth is perfect and it's pure. And I'm also from the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe known for its nobility, a tribe known for uh, its favor and its blessing from God. He's saying, I have been born into the absolute perfect circumstances. But it's not just how I've been born, it's also how I've been raised. I was circumcised on the eighth day. My parents, therefore, were devout Jews. I was raised in the right way. I'm from a good household. And I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. My education was absolutely flawless. It was not corrupted in any way by any of the sort of slightly dodgy outskirts influences. No, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. But it's not just that which I received through the privilege of my birth and my upbringing, but also the things that I have achieved. To the law, I am a Pharisee, widely known, the Pharisees, as the best keepers of the law, the most faithful. It was an honorable accomplishment to be known as a Pharisee. And his diligence and his dedication to the law knew no limits. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, I'll do whatever it takes to uphold faithfulness. And then as to his own personal righteousness, blameless. Faultless at keeping the law. As faultless as you could be, as faultless as could be expected. And just in reeling all of these off, you don't have to catch every single detail of every single... He's painting this picture of, I had it all. Everything that you could possibly be looking for, everything you could want, I had it. If the game was confidence in the flesh, then I've won. I am the reigning champion of confidence in the flesh. If this is the rules, I am the winner. And it's from this position that Paul is in of victory and of strength with respect to confidence in the flesh that he says, what I've found is this is not the game. This is not what we should go for. He said, I've learned to put no confidence in the flesh. I've learned that putting my confidence in the flesh, these things, they will not get me what I am looking for. I had everything and none of it, none of it truly helped me where I want to go. And I'd imagine that many of us in this room, in fact, I know many of us in this room, and uh, like me, I'd put myself in this category, are like Paul. We have been born into a good home. We've had some level of privileged upbringing, uh, maybe wealthier than the average person in the country or certainly on a, a global scale, richer than others, had good education. There's people in this room that are hardworking, high, high achievers, upwardly mobile. And none of these things are bad things. They are good things. In fact, Paul, in a moment, will describe them as genuine gain that he had in his life. 
But we need to hear Paul's warning here. He says, look out. Privilege and achievement can bring about, or they, they bring the danger of finding our confidence in the flesh, in what we have, in what we can do. I remember a few years ago, um, we received a bit of inheritance money, which was a, a good a blessing for us. And about exactly the same time, we uh, hit in a bit of turbulence in our life with respect to um, I was working a fairly lucrative financial career and just thinking we could earn lots and lots of money doing that. And then the, trying to make the decision of, do I step out of that and start to work in a slightly less lucrative sector of church work um, and whether to do that. And it was a time of upheaval and, and questioning and trying to work it all out. And I remember every time that I started to feel insecure and what's going on, I would think about the money in the bank. And I'd think, oh, everything's going to be okay. That I feel a bit uncertain. I feel a bit like, oh, it's a bit shaky. Oh, but there's money in the bank. We'll be all right. I can find confidence and security because... There's a nice little pile of cash in the bank. I don't know if you've ever had something similar. Confidence in the flesh because of what I had. That I can look to myself and I'll have what I need or I'll be able to find what I need. And this is intuitive to all of us. This is the air that we breathe in today's culture. It's how we're raised, that in this highly individualized society, qualities such as being independent or self-sufficient or self-achieving, self-reliable, self-reliant, they are championed qualities. And we may not have Jewish false teachers, Jewish Christian false teachers coming in and trying to say, you should put your confidence in the flesh. But we do have motivational gym posters that say, if you believe in yourself, you can do anything. Now, the potential, of course, and the opportunity that that opens up, those are great things. But the message is you have to rely on yourself. You have to put all of your confidence in you. And then maybe you'll find what you need. It runs deep in all of us. It's kind of the default mode of our hearts. It's the gravitational or the magnetic pull of, of the world that we live in. But Paul is saying, look, if, if you can detach yourself from this magnetic pull that, you're, that we're all subject to, if you can put no confidence in the flesh, there is a prize so much better. There's something so much greater for you. Look outside of yourself. Look to another and after spelling out the dangers in verse 2 through to 6, he then leads in verse 7 through to 8 to the solution. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is the turning point in the passage. That all of that build up of spelling out everything that he had outlining the great riches that he possessed in a way. Everything anybody could ever want was in Paul's hand. And he says, I'll count it as loss. I'll put it down. None of it is worth grasping. None of it is worth trying to protect. None of it is worth trying to make sure it stays in my account and keeping it all to myself. This was Paul's entire life work. Everything he had given his life to achieving and accomplishing, all of the things that he'd been born into and been given and he had accomplished and achieved. And 
his very identity was wrapped around all of these things. And he says, look, it's worth me losing all of it. Why? Because I have got Christ. I have found Christ. Christ has found me. The, the value of everything he once knew takes on a whole new perspective because he has encountered Christ Jesus. And this word counted that we find in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, is actually the language of accountancy, which I knew you were like, absolutely buzzing that we're bringing up accountancy during a sermon. But picture an accountant, which I know, again, not the most thrilling of, uh, of illustrations, so I apologize for that. But if you think of an accountant and how they work, you don't, you wouldn't trust an accountant that says, oh, I, I really kind of, I really feel like this number should be this. Or I've just got a strong sense that I should do this. Or I'm very much like, yesterday I thought this, but today I'm like, no, I probably feel a bit different now. With an accountant, you expect intellectual rigor. You expect logic. You expect calculation to be done in an objective way. This is a word of intellectual endeavor. This is not a moment of passion from Paul of just like, oh, I saw Christ. I just got very, very excited and left everything behind and now I'm following him. This is a considered decision. Jesus himself tells a, a very similar parable where he talks of a, a merchant of pearls, an expert in pearls who finds a single pearl that is greater, of greater value than anything he's ever found and from this place of expertise and knowledge, and I know everything about pearls, it is worth me now selling everything I have in order to get this one pearl. And he's talking about leaving everything behind, a very similar concept to follow Jesus. A rational decision, a, a thought through, considered approach. He's talking about an objective reality here. It's not just like Paul has, has found like, oh, well, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. From Paul's perspective, Christ was very, very valuable, so that's nice for him. This is an objective reality that Christ himself is far more worthy than anything else, is what Paul is saying. And he continues to elaborate in verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There was a study that came out last week that said that 50% of house buyers, 50% of house buyers during the pandemic have some level of regret from buying their house. Don't worry, Matt. I think it was, Matt's about to buy a house. I think it was, you know, in the height of the pandemic. You'll be fine. But we've all experienced buyer's regret before, haven't we? I don't know if any of you are already feeling that from Black Friday that's just gone. You just think, you, before you buy the thing, you think, this is going to revolutionize my life. I'm never, ever going to be better. And you buy it, and you're just like, oh, I'm a bit disappointed now. I think I got sucked in by the marketing. I definitely got sucked in by the marketing. I shouldn't have bought that thing. Well, whatever the opposite of buyer's regret is, that is exactly what Paul is experiencing here. That he continues to say, continues to be all in on this decision that he made. Because in verse 7, you might have noticed the shift. He's, he's talking in the past tense. He says, I counted as loss. But then in verse 8, he says, present tense, I count. He continues to count it. And then previously in verse 7, he said that 
all that I had was what he counted as loss. But now he's expanding it out and saying, everything, I count everything as loss. That just there is nothing. I've lived this way now for some time, and I can tell you there is nothing that I have come across that even comes close, that even comes close to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's saying the closer I have got to Christ, the the more I have lived in this decision that I have made, as I get nearer and nearer to him, the better this decision looks. The, The more I am delighted that I laid down everything to be with him, the more I'm convinced I'm just going to give everything that I have, give it all up to be with him. And at this point, I think it is worth remembering the context that Paul is writing this letter from. He is in prison. He's locked and bound in chains. He's probably going to die soon. If not this trial, then the next. He knows that this is coming to him. He's got nothing going for him. He's in the most desperate of circumstances. And as he writes, he's joyful. He's happy. He's saying, I don't need anything. There is nothing you could get me. He's not even asking for Netflix. Surely you could do with some crown. No. He's saying, I want for nothing, nothing, because I have received surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, that in him alone, him alone, I have everything. Right here, as the commentator on this passage, Walter Hansen says, we see that Christ is the center of Paul's theology. The person of Christ is what Paul thinks about. His whole construction of what faith looks like is bound up and found in the person of Jesus. But here, Paul is not just doing book work. We see that this is also the central center of his inner spiritual life and formation. Here we we see he's writing so personally. He's writing so autobiographically, just saying this this here is what makes Paul tick. This is why Paul gets out of bed in the morning, that life for him is just all about Jesus Christ. It's all about following him. For the five verses from verse seven onwards, nine times he mentions Jesus' name. He says, I just want to, I want to gain Christ. I want to put my trust in him. I want to know him. I want to share in Christ. I want to be like him. And nothing else is worth my time. Not even the crown. And I know that many here would have a similar desire. Just, I, I, I want to know Christ more in my life. I want to have more of him. You earnestly want to gain Christ and have a closer relationship with him. And just I just want to affirm that and commend it and say that is a biblical heart attitude. That is what we see in Paul. And he's crystal clear with how we can make steps towards it. Verse 7, he counted his gain as loss for the sake of Christ. He counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then perhaps most clear in the second half of verse 8. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Gaining Christ comes through the loss of all things, some things for the sake 
of him. That counting everything that we possess as loss. To engage in this intellectual endeavor that Paul does and say, I'm going to line my mind up and say that everything that I have, everything that seems so valuable to me, everything that I would be tempted to look to to find my confidence, next to you, Jesus, it is worth nothing. That, Jesus, you have surpassing worth. That next to you, Jesus, as Paul says, that it's rubbish. Not because it is rubbish in and of itself, but just compared to you. Compared to you, Jesus. And what Paul is actually talking about here is repentance. Not something we talk about a lot, but it's a changing of mindset. Of saying, I will turn away from all of these things in which I find so much value and so much gain and so much worth. I'm going to turn away from them. And Jesus, I'm going to look to you to find all of those things. I know it will only be found in you, Jesus. I feel like I do this every week. I end up picking the notices as my second sheet of notes. Excuse me. But this is, just to be clear, to be faithful doesn't then mean, well, I have to just end up in prison. I'm going to end up losing literally everything I own. Otherwise, I'm not faithful to God. And nor is it a rebuke of Paul saying, look, if you are not suffering intensely, you are doing it wrong. You're never going to gain Christ like that. What are you up to? It's making that rational, considered decision. It's a posture of the heart and saying, Jesus, I am not going to cling to anything. Anything you want from me for any reason, Jesus, it's yours. And that might sound incredibly daunting. Like, How do I, I've, am I ever going to get to the place of just being able to lay down everything? But we don't have to start big. We can just start with small changes to move towards it. Maybe for you, social acceptance is just something you've never been able to really properly lay down for the sake of Christ. You've always then, well, you've never felt comfortable talking to your friends about going to church or your faith, and you've just always tried to avoid the subject. Maybe for you, loss for the sake of Christ is simply taking a few of those carols flyers home with you, giving them out to your friends, and saying, look, actually, this is something I do. This is something that's really important to me. I'd love for you to come along. Or maybe for you, similar to my example, maybe money in the bank is just an area where you find security. And that is just that you've never been able to really work through that. Perhaps for you, loss for the sake of Christ is simply just starting to give. Just a small amount. Just something that maybe one day in the future you would then be able to say, everything in my bank account, I consider that loss. Like if Christ wants that, I would give it to him. Taking these small steps of loss for the, for the surpassing worth of Christ. And then in the final three verses, Paul wants us to see exactly why he is so worthy. Why gaining Christ is so sweet for us. After the warning at the beginning, and then after the solution that he's given us, finally, to steal a word from Paul from the next time we look at Philippians, the prize of Christ. He finishes verse 8 by saying, in order that I may gain Christ, and then go straight into verse 9, and be found in him. All through this passage, we have this relational closeness that we can find in Christ. 
of what Paul has discovered as he has given himself to Jesus is that I, I just know him. I'm found in him. Verse 8, we have the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then verse 10 again, we have that I may know him. And this word know is deeply significant in this culture. It's not just like we might say, oh, do you know Keith? Yeah, I know Keith. Yeah, yeah, sort of know about him. No, this is a word that conveys something of intellectual depth and so insight into who God is. He's saying, I know Christ. I, I understand more and more of God as I get closer and closer to him. I'm growing in my understanding and my true knowledge of God. But it also, this word know, conveys deep relational experience and intimacy with someone. You even see it through the way that he talks about Jesus. He calls him Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, he is my Lord. He belongs to me. He is mine. But he's my Lord. He's my master. He refers earlier to himself as a slave to Christ. He's saying, actually, and I belong to him. He is mine and I am his. And then here we see him in this verse that I am found in him. He's talking about in language of just an inseparable communal bond that he and Christ have. The theological term would be that he's talking about his union in Christ or with Christ. My least favorite word when I used to go on holiday as a child was the word culture. Because my parents would say to me, oh, we're going to go look at some culture today, which was code for, we are going to go look around endless numbers of boring museums and boring church buildings, and I'm going to be dragged around and it's going to be terrible. And the problem was, the reason it was so dull is that everything that you would see in these places were always at a distance. So you might see something that's brilliant, but it's over there, and there's always the rope which isn't the rope, though it's the worst thing ever when you're a child. It's like, what is this? Why do we have to obey the rope? Why do I have to be separated from this thing that looks worth looking at a bit more by this piece of rope? With Christ, there is no rope. The union with Christ and the worth of Christ is not bounded off by a piece of string he says, come and be completely united to this worth. This is worth that we can experience, worth that we can know, that we can find out for ourselves. I love that Paul here is using this profound language of who Jesus is and what he has found in Christ, but he's talking about it from personal experience. He's saying this is not just true, this is something I have found to be true through my own life. And do you know what else I love? We don't have to take Paul's word for it. He's saying this is something that we can come and explore for ourselves. Come and see for yourself. Come and try for yourself. Does Jesus really have surpassing worth? That is the invitation. Don't just take my word for it. But he's saying come, enter in, come and enjoy, come and experience it for yourself. And in this union, come and experience righteousness. Specifically, as Paul goes on in verse 9, not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. And here Paul is drawing a direct uh, contrast between the righteousness of his own that he talked about in verse 6, the, the righteousness that comes through confidence in the flesh. 
and now righteousness that has come to him from God. Righteousness was what Paul had devoted his entire life to trying to get hold of. Every single moment, every single waking day was about trying to live out and achieve and accomplish righteousness. It was his driving force. And now, in this union with Christ, he has just received it. He has found righteousness. And not just any righteousness, but the perfect, true righteousness of Christ given to him just as a gift. The, post, the closer that Paul got to Christ, the more he sees everything that he was seeking after, everything that he was giving his life to through putting his confidence in the flesh are things that he has now found in their fullest and completest form in Christ is given to him as a gift by drawing near to Christ everything that he was devoting all of his work his money his attention his energy to was found in a fuller ultimate form from Christ that all of the gains that we seek the comfort and the security that would come from getting a nice house in a nice area or the success and the victory that we might feel as we get to the top of our career and uh, uh, sitting at the top of the perch living in the corporate suite or whatever it would be the the joy that we might find by going on life experiences around the world bungee jumping and victoria falls all of these things that we would long for Ultimately, we find a fulfillment in him. That all of our need for security and comfort and joy and victory and success found in him as a gift. Just gives it to us. I mean, it sounds far too good to be true, doesn't it? I think this is why we sometimes struggle with it and believe in it. Believe in it. I just think surely it can't be that easy. Surely we can't just come to Jesus, give our life to him, and he will give us everything we're searching for. You think, no, that can't be it. But this is why he is so worthy. He is so much better than we allow ourselves to imagine. And as we come to receive, we come and share in everything that he is. Verse 10, he says, he uses words like knowing Christ and sharing in Christ and becoming like Christ. An invitation into participation in life in Christ. And at first glance at this verse, you might think, I do not want this. Sharing in Christ's suffering. Becoming like him in his death. You think, no thanks, I'll try something else but it's also an invitation to participate in the power of his resurrection. Both of those things at the same time. That in our times of suffering, in our times of hardship, to know all of the power of God in the resurrection of Christ. That is what he gives us. You might think, what on earth does that even look like? It looks like Paul. Everything we see in this letter, as we see a man writing who can't, you can't help but feel the joy just flowing out of the page and coming at you as you read a book like Philippians. A man that has, as we'll see later on, learned to be content in all things. 
a man who's found the secret to overcoming anxiety in life. A man who's totally confident in his future and knows exactly where he's going and cannot wait for it all to come to pass. A man with absolutely no fear in death whatsoever. A man who, when everything is taken away from him, locked in prison, bound up, chained, nothing to his name, is able to say, I need nothing. You can't get me anything that's going to bring me joy and pleasure because I have everything that I need in Christ Jesus. This is always good news. I think this is particularly good news when we wake up in the morning and we look, turn on our news and we see another variant of concern. And we start to think there's so many questions, there's so much uncertainty as we perhaps face in the midst of more loss. Loss of freedom, loss of fun, loss of stability. I don't know about you, but I want what Paul has here. That whatever we might lose, whatever I might lose in the coming weeks and months, we'll just have to see to know joy in Christ, to know confidence in Christ, to know comfort in Christ, to know contentment in Christ, to know freedom in Christ, to know stability in Christ, to know power in Christ. And Paul's message throughout the whole of this chapter is that we can have this. Paul was a man just like us. For all of his accomplishments, for all of his, he got into scripture, he was a man just like us. Later on in the chapter, we'll see, he'll say, join in imitating me. You can be like this. This is not some far-off discipleship. This is not some out-of-reach life. This can be the normal Christian experience for us. And it's not easy, but he wants us to hear. It's so worth pursuing. It's so worth us considering Paul's warning that there is a danger. Look out. Where is your confidence? Are you looking to him? It's worth us considering the cost of the solution, bearing the cost of the solution, laying down the things that we value, just beginning to make those small changes towards counting things as loss, making that considered decision. Actually, I do think Christ is better. And it's worth us leaving everything behind so that we too may experience and know the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we too may get hold of Christ Jesus, our prize. Let me pray.